Hello, Jeffrey. Hey, Dor. Good news. Go on. Uh, I have a special guest uh, on the other line that I'm going to patch in. Okay, it's going to be a surprise. How exciting. Okay, it's a friend from our past. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Ready? I'm going to patch him in right now. Hey, Micha, are you there? Hello, everyone. I'm here. Ah, oh, Micha. This is so good. Oh, pleasantly surprised, are we, Dor? <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can we do that again? No. Why? <laughs> Jeff's going to have a mental breakdown. My name's Jeff. I'm calling in from California. My name's Dor, and I'm joining you from London. Out of 16 million, we are two. Two freaked out Jews. All right. To our audience, let me just tell you. Micha is our friend, one of our closest friends. He was in our Garin that we talked about. He was in the army with us. And he has a very unique skill of getting under door skin and mine, but mostly doors. I think it's mostly Jeff, actually. I so. don't th- No, I don't think me, me and Dor have any uh, antagonism. Really? You think that you get under my skin? I purposely... Yes. It's so charming to get under your skin. Explain. Uh, I don't know. You try hard. It's cute. <laughs> Well, you're not under my skin right now, so I'll, I'll let you know that. All right. I, I'll like to add that you mentioned he was in our green, which means that he lived with us in the same house. He was in the same army unit as us. We spent every day together for the years we were in the army. And uh, one thing I will say about Micha is that it was a, such a pleasure doing patrols or guard duty or stakeouts with him because I swear we never, ever, ever ran out of things to talk about. You would play these random games with me, like like interview each other for jobs we just like do job interviews for each other. Like sometimes you'd be the employer. Sometimes I would. Be. You know, what was a funny game that I play with my daughter is, um, is this song made up or real? And then you sing a song. All right, let's hear one. Uh, That's a funny game. I am going to play like, that with my Okay, kids. so like I told ER, my daughter, I was like, is this song real or made up? Because this is my United States of whatever. Da, 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 da. And she didn't think it was real because it sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but it's real. Can you cut all this out? I don't even know what I'm talking about. No. We should probably add that Micha is American, but he lives in Tel Aviv. Oh, yes. Let me, uh, just a quick history about me. I was born in Israel, but I grew up in Seattle, Washington. And I moved to Israel when I was 18 with uh, Dor and Jeff. And then um, after the army, I fell in love and married a kibbutz member. I left Sasa uh, in in July, right before um, the war started, and all of Sasa right now is living in Magan, which is a village near the Kinneret. So it was kind of good timing because they're all living in like a hotel for two months, which sucks. Yeah. So. Do you still uh, go and see them, Micha? Uh, I Donna wants me to see them more than I do. I've never gone to see them. There's a stress in Magan that I'm not so uh, crazy about. Just the way people talk is like a little bit uh, not easy. Hard for me to well, explain. Well, they have been moved from their houses, so can't really blame them. They're literally war refugees. They're displaced yeah, yeah, refugees. I, I don't blame them. I totally understand. I'm sure if I was there, I'd be the same way. Of course. So this is actually a good segue. It leads me to my first question to you, Micha. During the height of the war, not that the height of the war is over, but in the early stages of the war, what was it like going to those bomb shelters when the rocket attacks were happening over Tel Aviv? Because I'll tell you, often it's something that I I don't focus on because it doesn't seem that 
there's aren't aren't casualties happening in mass from Tel Aviv bomb shelters. So I was fascinated to hear your account with your daughter, your family, what it was like going into these bomb shelters in Tel Aviv during rocket attacks. Uh, okay, I can talk about this for like three or four hours. So stop me when it gets boring. I, it's probably not so exciting topic, but um, 5 a.m. Octo- um, October 7th, Tel Aviv. I was running on the beach and I the, I was passing uh, three Arabs on bikes and there was a lot of, I was scared of them because they were in a big group and they were being very violent towards one of the, the this person tried to pass them on a scooter and he pushed the biker. I think they were all in one group. And the, Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. So you're on the, the boardwalk in the Tayelet of Tel Aviv? Yeah, exactly. It was really dark. It was nighttime or daytime? It was five in the morning, so it was still dark. What you're saying is a group of Arab Israelis, and they were on bikes. Yeah, they were Arab Israelis, as I assume. Young I men? Yeah, they were 18 to 20. And do you think they were up all night or just waking up? I don't know. They, Yeah, they were, uh, they were not just waking up. They're not doing exercise. They were uh, doing shenanigans, as one would say. And uh, anyways, so the scooter guy pushed the biker guy, and the biker guy got angry at him. So he pushed him down onto the ground, and as far as I could tell, maybe stabbed him or was just beating the shit out of him. But it was like real violence. I was scared that I was going to get hurt because I ran past them, and I was like, oh, shit, maybe they're going to see me. They're like committing some sort of crime or some sort of violence. I'm scared of them anyways. Was this was for what you could, what you could tell was the scooter was the scooter rider Arab Israeli or is he Jewish Israeli or you don't know? Hard for me to tell if they're Arab Israeli or Arab uh, Palestinian or whatever, but that's how my morning started, and I was. And you could tell they were Arab by their accents. Yeah, by their haircuts, by their clothes, by their outfits, by how they were talking. And they were talking Arabic, so I mean, no doubt. That's a, that's a giveaway. That's a giveaway. It was just there was violence, and I was scared that I was gonna get hurt, so I like ran away, and um, that's how I started my morning because I I was like, it just started tense. I'm really curious if they knew or if they didn't know. I don't know. If they knew or didn't know about October 7th, yeah. it was about to unfold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What time did October 7th unfold? 11 a.m.? No, right? no. It was, was it earlier. It started earlier. It started around 6.30 or 7. Because I heard it. Well, I, I don't know. It started around 6.30. The rockets started around 6.30 or 7 over, over uh, the Merkaz area, over the central Israel. I don't know when it started in um, around Gaza, but around Tel Aviv, it started around 6.30 or 7. I remember... Because I, I was hearing sirens, and I was like, oh, shit, that's like, um, there's like a, a lot of uh, ambulances. Like, I didn't understand what was going on. And then um, I heard like a lot, like very heavy things dropping. And I was like, oh, the construction sites must be dropping a lot of like materials, and there's ambulances. Like, I had no idea what was going on. People were like looking at each other, and there was a lot of uh, tension. And then... As I was getting closer to my house, I heard like a real siren, like a Seva Dom. And I was like, okay, I better get inside. There was a huge boom. I was like, I heard the boom. I was outside for the boom. It was really uncomfortable. It was scary. I got in inside. People were like crying a little bit. This wasn't my bomb shelter, by the way. There was this one girl that was like hyperventilating and crying, blah, blah, blah. And then- um, Stop. Yeah. Stop. You can't, So you came back from running- yeah. You went inside to your your building? Not my building. No, no, no. I was still running. I went in. 
I was maybe half a K away from my building, so I went into another building that didn't A know random building. Yeah. And so your wife, Donna, and your child, AR, were home. Yeah, they, I think they still. slept through the first alarm. Uh, but I was hearing alarms all morning, but I, they were like kind of far away. But the, fir- the, ro- the first rocket that hit Tel Aviv hit three houses away from my house. And then I was going to the store. After the whole event, it was like, I guess, 9 in the morning or 8.30 in the morning. I went out to go to the store to go get food because we thought... Wait, hold on. I'm sorry, Micha. I'm sorry. What? Is it boring? I understand. So, it sounds boring. No, it's, not, it's not boring at all. It's not boring at all. It's super interesting. All right. So you went to the random building, mm-hmm. and then from the random building, you went home. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I went home. And I saw Donna and You ER, got home. And we're like, yep. we opened the news, and we saw 40 people, maybe more, were killed in the South. And Donna's like, this is really, there's, there was like 5,000 rockets, or I don't know, there's like thousands of rockets. And Donna's like, this this is not normal. And I was like, 40 people. It's, I was in denial. The whole first day, I was like, you know, it'll the army will get there. They'll take care of the situation. Like, everything's fine. I didn't want to consider what could happen. I was just like in denial, and I was like, ah, oh, fuck it. Like, everything's fine. I think you're not unique in a lot of people, which I called that day, said, are you sure it's just a bunch of rockets? You know, it's not going to be that big. I don't know. It, you know. I felt like all of Israel was sort of naive uh, about the Hamas up until that point because the Hamas weren't really doing anything for years. And also, they kept stopping rocket attacks. Like, there would be rocket attacks from Jihad al-Islami and the Hamas would, like, stop them. So, I don't, I don't know why Israel had this conception, but I, as far as I understand of the situation, Israel even oh, Micha, pulled the army You're a chess player, away. right? You're a chess player. Isn't this like, uh, aren't they playing some sort of, what, what's a, a chess move like this? You know, and you put your bishop into the corner and you like, he's latent. And I'm just going to disregard that. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> That's not a real thing. <laughs> not a real thing at all. Under my skin! Um. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Anyways, um, wait, wait. So I just want to finish. So I, so I went to the store to go get, um, I think I, I was going to get salmon or I don't know what I was going to get. I was going to get some food because we were scared the stores are going to close once it became apparent that like, um, like this was serious. And then there were Arab Israelis working in the store. They were like the cashiers. And I wasn't sure if they hated me, if they were going to be violent towards me, if they were scared of me. It was a really awkward situation. It was like October 7th that like uh, the Hamas were calling for jihad against Israelis. And there was a lot of rockets all day, rockets, rockets. And like I was like, oh, by the way, c- could I have some salmon? It was just like an an awkward like, <laughs> do you still work here? Are you still friendly? Are we still cool? Or like, do you hate like what's going on? Well, I think this 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 touches upon obviously, uh, and we should we should acknowledge that there hasn't been any real issue um, inside of Israel between Arab Israelis and. Uh, like there was uh, over a year ago when there was a bit of sectarian issues. I know the Arab Israelis have been great. Yeah, they, and 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 a lot of and a lot of Arab Israelis they work in hospitals, they treat people, um, 
There's a lot of mixed cities and there hasn't been any issues this time. Um, I think this is interesting, but I think it's even if there is no issues, people are human beings and they are naturally going to be scared. I think that's what you're saying, Micha, that even though like, hey, well, I'm not seeing anything on the ground and this is why this conflict is so complicated. People are afraid. And when you're afraid, you stereotype. That's what happens. And um, so it's a completely natural reaction, even though it sounds like maybe to, to people that are not in the, in the region, it's really bad. But at the end of the day, you come in, you, you fear for yourself. You fear for, for your family. So I think it completely makes sense what you're saying. Especially in the first three or four weeks of the war, we didn't leave our house. It was scary. But even uh, Danny Young's brother died in uh, a Mutsav and they had a funeral and I really wanted to go to the funeral. They even... Stop. Danny Young is a friend of ours also who was lived in our house and was in the army with, at the same time as us. Yeah. And Micha was talking about his brother. He was in a Garim as well. He, so I was going to his brother's funeral and I took two steps outside and I started hearing booms and I was like, uh, no way, I'm not doing this. And I ran back inside and I was too scared to drive to Jerusalem to the funeral. I felt like a coward for not being able to get in my car and drive to Jerusalem. That was, you know, I, I it was a low point. I felt like cowardice. Um, were you were you feeling scared of leaving your wife and child or were you scared of your own no, life? No, I was like, I don't know. I've I've had some uh, PTSD-ish issues with uh, surrounding Miluim for the past 12 years during a lot of... Uh, major incursions into Gaza in 2014 and 2009. Um, and I've had really bad experiences. Not really bad, but pr pretty bad. And uh, I just, I was really scared on October 7th. It was a, I've, but it wasn't on October 7th. The funeral was, I think, October 9th or October 10th. Micha, is this the first um, Gaza escalation where you've been a father? You have had it, because 2014 is before your daughter was born. Yeah, um, first of all, yeah, I guess it was the first escalation that I've been a father, that's for sure. But for in whatever context, I was really scared and I, I felt like ashamed of my fear. And I came back upstairs after like literally five minutes of going to my car. And I was like, I can't go. I just can't go. It's important to me. I would like to go, but I, I can't. I'm too scared. I don't want to go. And I felt like hopeless and like, what? what's going on here like everything i think seems to not to be wrong and I, yeah i was just like in a really bad place i was like kind of crying all day and not able to work yeah the october 8th was the was one of the hardest days of my life yeah and for you specifically i could imagine the magnitude of it because it's so close to home for you literally and figuratively because you had just moved to Tel Aviv. You were a kibbutznik living on a border of hostile territory. And the stories that came out of Gaza were people like you living your just everyday life, uh, having their breakfast cereal, wearing their pajamas, where, and, and demons coming in and just yeah, erasing everything you think is the world. You know, like that... I could see why that would just be crippling for you. We, we had a plan to go to a music festival right in that exact same area the, the weekend after. We were supposed to go to Indy Negev, which is like extremely close to uh, the music, the Nova music festival. And like, it, yeah, 
exactly. You just look at the news and you're like, it could have easily been me. It could have been me so easy and everyone there looks like me and they have like a very similar, I don't know, similar uh, way of living. Aesthetic as me. And I'm just like, I don't even, I can't pay attention to their story because it makes me too uh, uneasy and scared. I have to like kind of ignore it in order to function. And uh, it's, I don't know how moral that is, you know? Is it moral to not pay attention? I'll tell you my view on it. I think that this is a grieving process that everyone's going through. And my view on grieving uh, in general is that there is no right way. Some people plan. Some people are sitting there watching news the whole time. Some people sit and cry. Some people go watch comedy, take their mind off it a bit. Some people have lots of ways to deal with grief in life in general. And whatever way that you deal with it naturally, whatever's coming out of you naturally, is the correct way. So if you want to sit there watching the news 24-7, and that was my way of doing it, and I know that some people that's overwhelming, and there's some people that just want to disconnect. I mean, Jeff, you spoke about it last time when you wanted, you kind of taken a break, you have to, it was sort of overwhelming for you. And I think that's, that's fine, that should be allowed. No one should judge anyone for how they're dealing with with this um, horrific situation. Um, I have a pushback, if I may, respectfully, which is um, as far as myself goes, and I generalize this to other people as well, the way I look at the, uh, the horrific stories and the horrific videos on Telegram that everyone can watch if you just go on X or Telegram or whatever, is it's a rabbit hole that has no ending. And as soon as you uh, like start you can just keep digging and digging and find yourself like intoxicated. And um, it's my, well, okay, so I have a kid and I think it's my a parent's responsibility to keep a sense of normalcy, even though the world's like burning down around you. You have to just keep going. You have to keep a schedule. You have to read books and uh, go outside and go on bike rides and, you know, so... In that sense, like, I don't think it's responsible as for a parent necessarily, not necessarily for someone that's not a parent, but to just, like, get drawn into the horror and just, like, be glued to wine it all the time and not able to, like, function, you know? So... Yeah, I think it's probably different if you've got other responsibilities. And um, but I was talking about more in general uh, yourself, how you deal with it. I think it. you're both um, right. Yeah, I think what Micha's saying is part of what Dora's saying. Everyone grieves in your, your own way. Some people start a podcast to cope. Oh, I that's know who those people are. Uh, I hope. <laughs> I hope now is a good time to uh, segue into. I, I... Are you the host? Michal's the host now, and, I, and I'm all for it. <laughs> oh, Jeff, sorry, sorry, I took away your control. Anyways, no, um... no, be the host. I like that you're the host. I'm not. You're not under my skin. Go ahead. Okay, so it's just a, a very quick segue into why I'm not freaked out because I'm not freaked out, and I'm barely <laughs> Jewish. Uh, okay, so what are if you were to title your podcast, what would you call it? Yeah, I would call it just a normal guy. Sounds fascinating. <laughs> Even keeled human. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna do it, uh, an impression of you, Micha. This whole podcast, I'm gonna like Why? really go so hard on not doing an impression because I was do it. Oh, I was known for doing a Micha impression you're back wel- in the day, and that probably got under your skin. No, a no, bit. you're welcome. To I, do I, that. I think you should. Jeff. <clears throat> I, I don't think I'm a freaked out Jew because 
<laughs> oh, I don't have it anymore. I'm missing something with it. I had it. I could do it so well, but it was like... Listen, uh, let me tell you why I'm not freaked right. out, okay? Okay, go ahead. Sorry for all that. And no, it's cool. It's, I, it's welcome. Um, I'm not freaked out because... Um, so honestly, yes, I am a bit freaked out. Yes. But I choose not to even consider that because it makes me feel uncomfortable to like... You know, the world kind of sucks now, and there's been a pandemic, and there's, like, a lot of violence all of a sudden, and wars, and so many deaths, and, like, like all I think about, really, is just, like, my work, uh, going climbing, like, hanging out with my family, going hiking, what I'm going to cook on Friday. I don't, like, I really don't pay attention to all the scary stuff, because, you know, it's in the, it's not relevant, it's... That sounds more denial than not being freaked yeah. out. Yeah, dude, you just you admitted that you are. You're like, this is why I'm not a freaked out Jew. I am a freaked out Jew, but I'm pretending not to be. Sure, sure, sure. It, I wouldn't call it denial. I would call it like I'm just. Um, it's not something I can even consider until it comes knocking at your door. You know, like on October seventh when you were in denial until you couldn't be anymore. Okay, I have a. I have a question for Dor and Jeff. It's good because we're both here. So. I have, a, I have a. I'm sorry, Jeff, for being such a bad podcast host up until now. So I'm gonna make an effort to be more like uh, commercially viable. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we are on one even keeled human. <laughs> Let's hear your question. Okay, my question is: um, Do you guys think that? Uh, okay, first. Uh, the, the mainstream idea of the war is that Israel is going to destroy Hamas. Um, and I'm glad you asked this. I'm glad you asked this already because um, it, two episodes ago, Dor made the claim that, like, oh, we are going to defeat Hamas. And it was like, he said it so sure of himself. I just like, went like oh, good. Yeah, yeah, I agreed. And then uh, we got some flack from our listeners. Yeah, okay. And I, I think this is a good question for Dor specifically. And, so okay, so Dor. So, well, wait, before, let me let me get to the, the question. I guess two questions. First, is it possible to defeat the idea of Hamas? But really, my question is, is it physically possible to actually defeat Hamas? Like, maybe they're all underground in bunkers, and maybe we're just shooting a bunch of people that are not actually terrorists. Or maybe we're shooting half and half, or maybe they're like there's like 50,000 people underground that we just haven't found and we might never find. So, yeah. Okay, so that was a complex thing. And let me go back to to the beginning of saying, can we defeat Hamas? And when I, when I, I think there's two ways to look at defeating Hamas. Hamas is a, is a military organization, has military capabilities, but also it has civilian um, responsibilities. It manages Gaza, it manages the police, it manages the, the hospitals, it manages daily life there. So to defeat Hamas, you have to attack both of those things. But... Initially, you have to defeat their um, civilian capabilities. So post this war, Hamas will no longer be in charge of day-to-day life in Gaza. There'll be a different authority. So that's number one. That's, it doesn't mean it disappears. Hamas, there'll always be Hamas members. Somebody will go watch on the computer a video of Hamas and become a Hamas, like, um, almost, become radicalized. Almost like the, you're like talking about like white nationalists. Like in the yeah, same yeah, way somebody will become radicalized. Somebody will become radicalized and they'll be Hamas member, but Hamas will no longer um, control the civilian apparatus of the state in Gaza. That's that's a fact. 
How can you be sure? Yeah, how can you be sure that will happen? Yeah, let me let me just explain what I mean by defeating Hamas, and you can argue against it. Now, militarily, again, there will always be this person with a gun or a knife, so that will continue. However, their military control, their um, outposts, their headquarters, those will be destroyed um, completely. So they will not; fu- they'll function as as a normal terrorist organization that exists. So when so when I say defeating Hamas. It's basically taking the their power to control both civilian in a civilian way and a military way that region that the Gaza Strip. Dor, question. Now to okay. Do you picture that after next year, next December, um, it will be safe for Israelis to enter into Gaza City and walk around as tourists? No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, it's not safe for you to enter now. Um, to go to Janine or to go to Ramallah in the West Bank, uh, we still control that. No, no, this is we're not we're not in Europe. This is Israel not Israel doesn't uh, control Ramallah. Ramallah. Just want to say Israel does not control Ramallah. It has ability to go in militarily if it wants to, but Israel the Israeli military will have freedom of movement to go whenever it wants, like it does in the West Bank, and go capture terrorists because terrorists will still exist, and their leaders will be targeted for the foreseeable future. To answer your question about the, are they all hide, like, are we killing the wrong people, whatever. That's a more complicated thing. Um, obviously, civilians are being killed. This is war. However, I will say on the other hand that a lot of Hamas operatives are, you know, they're not fighting in military equipment. They're fighting in, with civilian clothes. A lot of the hostages in the first days that they were, you know, held in Gaza, they weren't held underground. They were moved underground eventually. Initially, they were held in regular apartments of people who are affiliated with Hamas. We're talking about women, older people, they're affiliated with Hamas. So it, it, you have to imagine Hamas, because of the nature of their control over the territory, they, they have a, the military aspect, which is probably all majority men, but they also have other operatives. So there has been collateral damage. Of course, there's lots of the horrible civilian casualties. We can see the numbers. Um, but you know, Hamas hides behind its, its civilians. That that's what it does, and it's a it's a tactic that they they use, and it's very successful for them in making us look very bad um, and making it very difficult to fight. But you know, to go into your question on what are they all just hiding underground and we'll never catch them? Look, today the Hamas leadership, because they're cowards, they're hiding underground, but. They won't be able to stay there for long. Israel is finding the tunnels. It's destroying them. This is... No other army has had to do with this kind of system. Um, Israel is slowly destroying it. And again, they will eventually come up because you can't stay underground forever. And that's how we will destroy Hamas. That's what I mean by destroying Hamas. We will not fully destroy the ideology, but we will stop them having military and civilian control over that area. What about, I don't think we've ever talked about the strategy of winning hearts and minds of the people of Gaza. How impossible of a task is that? Or is it completely possible that after this bloody, destructive war happens, there's a way that Israel can do things to help rebuild, to provide Palestinians in Gaza with the things that they're looking for, that they need, the things that Hamas came and provided for them. And and that's how Hamas was able to get their claws into Gazan society by providing them with with any hope, with any schools, with any hospital. Like, is that a possibility? 
to win hearts and minds and to beat an ideology? Is that a good question? Yeah. Host. Great question, Jeff. <laughs> I like your initiative. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just quickly to answer door with a follow-up question and then I'll answer. So my question's gone. My, oh, my no, question's no. lost. No, no, I'm going to answer your question. <laughs> Right. Door in my, I can can I can imagine a scenario um, that would run counter to what you just said. Sure. Consider that we're gonna fight until I don't know August. Okay, we're gonna fight all year, and maybe three hundred uh, IDF soldiers will be killed in action. Maybe five hundred. I don't know. I'll we're they're dying, and it's it's really scary to open up Wyna and see 10 soldiers died, 14 soldiers died. I, th- I think besides the October 7th soldiers that died, I think 150 have died thus far in combat. Yeah, it's been uh, October, um, November, December. It's been two months and 150 died. And as far as I know, we're supposed to continue until the summer. So if every two months 150 die, that, that's a lot. It's uh, a bit terrifying. Yes, uh, 150 soldiers have died so far in, in the Gaza operation. This is in addition to what um, the people that died in October 7th, which is terrible, tra- terribly tragic. I will say that the army is doing an incredible job. People thought that there would be much more casualties. I think the army is conducting itself. It's going very slowly um, and very carefully. I think the war will change to a different phase. I think what you are going to see in the future of Gaza, uh, and you're right, Israel will not be in there, but let's, let's explain what that means. They're not going to be in there. Israel will create, as I mentioned, a buffer zone. Um, so no one can come to the fence. It'll just be an area, no man's land, where the army will be in there. Secondly, Israel will... Up until August, or whenever they decide to move to this new phase of war, there will be special units going in whenever they want. There will be aerial bombardment whenever they want to specifically target Hamas and terrorists in, in areas which have not been dealt with yet. Um, beyond that, um, what's going to happen is that, you know, if you want to take out Hamas to be the controlling power, who's going to control Gaza? And you're right, it's not going to be Israel. I believe it's going to be some kind of coalition. Um, again, you have to remember the this war partially started, the, the timing of it was related to the Israeli-Saudi Arabian normalization. I think the actual, the, the normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia will happen and they'll actually use Gaza as Wait a Wait a minute, so this, could, this the, could tie into my hearts and mind thing, okay? Okay, but, go ask your... What do you mean? This could tie in. What if me? This is like this is a pie in the sky hope, and I know it's not. There's a million things standing in its way, but just throwing this out there. What if Israel and Saudi Arabia work together to make some sort of Saudi um, Emirates coalition that could help with all of their oil money? win the hearts and minds of the Palestinians, build up a good society for them. We, we come in there right now doing this terrible, dirty job of decapitating Hamas. And so, yeah, I think, and, I think that, yeah. that if we, yeah, I think you were asking about like the hearts and minds. Can we, can we uh, deal with the hearts and minds of Palestinians? Let's not be naive. There's been a horrendous amount of civilian deaths. 
They're not going to be happy about this. Okay, I'm not going to say we do the, win the hearts and minds tomorrow, but like in a lot, many conflicts in the world where there's been horrific deaths and civilian casualties, and you know, I mean, we're all Israeli citizens, and we will ha- would not have a problem making peace with the Palestinian people, even though October seventh happened and it was the most cruel. Uh, I think. Like, I think. I think it's. I think there's a timing issue. I think in Israel now, and we can we can go more into this uh, with Micha, but um, I think there is no appetite at the moment for this. For, at for the moment, talks. but I in think the there's no run, appetite on in the long the run. Post. Can it be? Can the can okay? So, be, let, let, can so let me address. Let me address it because I think time is an important element here. I think currently there's no appetite on both sides to to really get to some kind of agreement and situation. I think in the long run. This is what's going to happen. Yes, and, and, and look, a lot of people are saying instead of winning hearts and minds, you're radicalizing people in, in Gaza. And I think that's 100% true. I've heard that from a lot of people, yeah. And people say, like, we shouldn't be in Gaza because we're actually radicalizing. I mean, I think October 7th, you know, was, was, the, was the, you know, was the... With the apogee, as I like to say, of, of radicalization. So it doesn't really matter how much you radicalize anymore because... They've already made the worst disaster in Israel's history. So I think that, yes, there will be radicalization. To Micha's point, you will never be able to remove Hamas fully, like the idea, because people will be radicalized by what happened. Longer term, with a international and Arab coalition, somebody will have to come and rebuild Gaza. Israel will facilitate some of that, will facilitate those organizations coming in building it again it's strategically important for the you know the the inner conflict between saudi arabia and iran at the moment gaza is a iranian outpost saudi arabia wants to switch it into a saudi arabian outpost um it's important for them economically it's important for the for the region for them to to control that so i think as part of normalization and we're not talking about you know this will be done by august we're talking about you know three years this is slowly, slowly has to happen in terms of the psyche of Israelis and psyches uh, of the Palestinians. This is going to take a lot of time and, you know, this region changes on a weekly basis. But that's, I believe, what's going to happen. And it's going to be easier for Saudi Arabia to sell normalization with Israel to its people and the other Arab uh, countries because they'll say, yeah, yeah, we're going to normalize with Israel. But really, we're going to go and help the Palestinians and build up Gaza. Interesting. And I hope they do. I hope they do build up Gaza. And I hope I hope Gaza does thrive and become the the Singapore of of the Levant. Like I hope it all happens. I have a different answer to your hearts and minds. Uh, maybe a pushback, some oh. would say. So, up until October sixth, I had this opinion that the Palestinians in Gaza are essentially Western in a way that they want a good life. I was like. Come on, they're people. They have kids. They have jobs. They go to their work and take their kids to, I don't know, go to ballet or whatever after school or whatever they their kids like to do. Like, at the end of the day, they just want to live and work and eat food with their family. Like, that that was my main idea. And now, <clears throat> since October 7th, I've been, like, uh, watching a lot of YouTube. I don't know if it's a good idea, but... Um, I've like been addicted to this guy named Corey Schuster. If you guys have heard of him, he goes around Israel and Palestine and asks random people questions of how they feel about uh, different topics. Okay, 
Um, and I've been reading polls and listening to a lot of NPR and um, radio and talk shows and blah, blah, blah. And I've come to the conclusion that there is a fundamental difference in culture between the Western and the Eastern or the Middle Eastern. And I don't think uh, the majority of Palestinians want peace. I think they want to fight. I think they feel like they can get, they can win eventually. And I feel like they have a different concept of time. The way they think about time is like in hundreds of years. They, they're like, maybe we won't win now, but we'll win in hundreds of years. And, and they think that Palestine is all theirs, like all of Israel. That's what they want, I think. So in my opinion... I think uh, part of what you're saying is has an element of like um, jihadi martyrdom in it that life is a blip and death is the true paradise. And I think that's like uh, uh, like actually believed, not just abstract thought, but like whatever happens now, we'll keep fighting this for our holy cause and in, in death we'll be, be become martyrs. And I think that plays an element that is so hard for us to grasp. I think, Jeff, you're 100% right that there is a problem, which I've noticed in the coverage, that, you know, when, when and it's you know horribly sad and you can say to me, why are you judging someone else? But when I see parents losing kids in, in Gaza, which is horrific, they're like, the, the language that they use is, oh, my kid's been martyred. The ideology there that there's a higher purpose, I mean, I understand that you need to believe there's a higher purpose for your child. Uh, I understand that that's what keeps you going, but that's so... It kind of like dehumanizes the situation. Yeah. We've heard a lot of Palestinians say that Jews celebrate life and Palestinians celebrate death. And it's not just like um, something to scare us. It's actually telling us a big aspect of culture. I don't want to stereotype everyone and say that that's what everyone believes. I, I have heard that in protests on the street. Um, and I, uh, going back to Micha, I think that He's right. There are a lot of people that look at this as, you know, we've got 100 years. We've got 200 years. We'll win eventually. Um, under that, like, first of all, uh, I think that, you know, the quintessential human power is hope. And you hope things will change. And I think Golda Meir said this, that uh, she was, there's a famous interview by the BBC or uh, a British guy that interviewed her and they said, oh, you know, eventually they're going to win, you know, and they think in 100, 200 years. Right. And her response was, so you're telling me nothing will change? Nothing is going to change in the 100 years? And her response was, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I think things will change and therefore we'll have a new reality. And, and have they changed or have they changed? Well, hold on. If we look at 1948, has the reality has, would anyone in 1948 imagine that we would have peace with Egypt or Jordan? Let's go back 10 years. Did you believe that you would be able to, as an Israeli person, go to Dubai or be talking about Saudi Arabia normalizing relations with Israel? No. So things can change yes, all the time yes. for positive and negative. Uh, I agree with you, Micha, that there is a fundamental issue here. And again, these people have been educated for years that, you know, and this is why the peace process has failed, by the way, because they didn't want to stop the struggle. This is, they believe that all the land is theirs. Either they, either the, either this massive um, war with Gaza basically shakes Israel society and shakes Palestinian society to saying, look, time to chart a new path. 
or we'll continue fighting. And the reality is, and this I say this to Israelis and to Palestinians, we're not going to get rid of them and we're not going to get rid of them. Both people are going to be in this region. There's nothing you could do about it. Now find a way to do it. They are, um, they're tribal. They live in um, big family Not units. all of them, Micha. Let's not they, stereotype everyone. I'm sorry, but they, they're a tribal culture. Their culture is tribal. They live, they have tribal weddings they have the, their whole life cycle is uh yeah it's tribal it's not not bad it's just it's different than um western i know it's really unpopular to talk about in the west that palestinians have a different culture than the west i think people would be horrified by that suggestion how dare you call them different you're dehumanizing your like it's racist, it's based on a race. No, it, there's a cultural differences between different cultures and I think that's acceptable to talk about. And I think that we saw this in uh, the West Bank that there's they, they, the way that Arabs in the West Bank and Gaza live is in Hamulot. There's big families and they all have the same last name in a whole big city. And they yes. they have a sort of a tribal culture where if I think this is yeah, true, Micha. let me finish. Let me finish. He's 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 gelling. Go. The way that uh, some of the the way that Arab cultures in the West Bank and Gaza function is that there is like common knowledge and everyone falls in line to it. I don't think there's so much um, resistance towards the Hamas be it because they're violent and everyone's scared or because they feel like the Hamas is at the only people doing fighting against the Israelis and they feel like the Israelis have uh, conquered their land and humiliated them and and uh, are terrible. So I think like everyone's kind of on the same page. Like they all want to keep fighting. That's what I think. I don't think there are hearts and minds over there. They're, everyone wants to fight, I think. Let me, let me, um, so I didn't mean to make you sound like, you know, stereotypical racist. I think that you're 100% right. You know, we talk, we talk about all the time then, like the extreme left in, in America and Europe and their view of Israel and, and the conflict. And they're like, why can't we just have one, one democratic free state? Because, and that's, I think there is a difference. I think you're right. I think there is a fundamental difference in the way the Middle East works. I mean, look, most of the Middle East is dictatorships. They don't work with democracy. What do you they mean democracy most? And then... they're, really, they're, it's all dictatorship. Yeah, I'm saying they tried democracy-ish, uh, and then, like, so Egypt, they tried democracy, and then they got the Muslim Brotherhood, and then they're like, okay, back to the dictatorship. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Palestinians tried democracy. Oh, we elected them. Oh, well, back to dictatorship. Hamas took over Gaza. Back to dictatorship. I think there is definitely a, a difference. That's why Israel deals with Arabs differently. And that's why it gets the international community has a go at Israel. Like, why are you not doing this more in the European style where we can just sit and talk? But the reality is there's different mentality. This is a different region. And the part of the problem is that the, the West puts its own mentality and beliefs and like pushing democracy into a region that like we don't have the same values as you. We're not, our values are not worse than yours. We're just different. Yeah. So treat us in the way that is more relevant to how we think and not how you think. And that's the reality of the situation. 
in terms of winning hearts and minds, again, I can I can put it put it down to there has been changes. There's been changes in Israeli Arabs inside of Israel in this conflict compared to the other conflict. There's been changes in in peace deals that Israel has managed to do. There's been a change in Saudi Arabia, which we don't have an active war with, but they've changed their stance. The the saying. We now are going to go with normalization with Israel because we're, we're tired of war. We're tired of this conflict. I think change can happen with the Palestinians, with the narrative of the grievance that they've had for many years, the, the, you know, the sharing of the land. I think that's going to take a long time. And just like they think they have a long time, I'm hopeful that we have a long time to change that too because we're not going anywhere and neither are they. That was lively. Um, let's end it here. Micha, let's give you the mic again. Let's tap into nostalgia, talk about a memory from me and Dorb and you back in the day, and then we'll, we'll end it on just like being happy. And then, uh, let me, let me dive deep into despair once more. And, uh, something that kind of rocked my world. It's, it's small, but it's, it was weird. Um, I'll just say it really fast and you can edit it back in into the question because we kind of skipped over that question. Great. Sounds fun. <laughs> That's what you do for a living. Just just do that. Edit. I don't make money from this podcast. I Actually, this eats into my living it making. It's, a, it's an investment, Jeff. Okay. Anyways, so um, I was walking back home from uh, Gone with my ER, my daughter, like the month ER. And um and and gone is kindergarten. Kindergarten, and she's always asking me, Micha, what? Or she says, Ah, start that again, Micha. Start it again. Why? Again. Why? Why? Because just make it condensed, for the love of God. <laughs> I know. I'm really. I'm <laughs> just saying, like I was walking with my with my daughter. I said as we it. started this to- uh, this this. Yeah, podcast you don't have to explain her name. That I can't okay, you talk. Don't have to explain her name. I just can't talk anymore. <laughs> now I work with computers. Now I, that's all I can do. Okay. Anyway, so. Alright, start again. So again. I was walking with my daughter home from kindergarten and a side note, my daughter is always asking me what we're supposed to do if there is a siren. And she asks this more than every day. She'll, she'll ask it every time we're outside, maybe two or three times a day, which is sad, honestly, that she has to, that she's, she's scared about it. She thinks about it even. So we're riding our bikes back home from kindergarten and we hear a siren. So I rush her. We throw our bikes into the bushes. We run into the bomb shelter. We were there within 10 seconds. It was a house, not our house. Uh, we stayed in the bomb shelter for around 10 minutes. It was a group of like 12 or 15 people, all strangers. No one was talking. Everyone was just basically quiet and looking at each other. Uh, and we were just waiting. And then we got out. We rode bikes and we continued on as if nothing had happened. The builders continued building the buses were driving, the cars were driving, and then we went to a pizza restaurant. It was so surreal that a rocket flew into our city and we just continued the day. It was just like, now nowadays rocket sirens are like a normalcy. So I, I thought it was, it's just weird. Well, isn't, that, isn't that the reality of like the Israeli life? Yeah. Now. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's how it is. You come home from kindergarten, you... You have you go through a rocket attack and then you go to a pizza restaurant and then you continue to the climbing wall. It's just like, what's going on here? What kind of life is this? It's just crazy. It's um, incredible. It's incredible to think about that. And I want to talk more in depth about the bomb shelters, about you and your daughter. But my AirPods are running out of battery. Um, and I ha- I'm sorry. I'm, oh, my God. All I wanted to talk about was you and your daughter and the, and the bomb shelters. But now we have to sign off, okay? 
Can, Mika, can we do this again soon with you and hear about the bomb shelters? I'm free on Monday nights. Okay. Door, we could do Mondays with Mika. But for now... But if I'm, um, if I'm a recurring guest, we're going to have to change the name of the podcast. Ergo, I'm not... Uh, <laughs> what's the word? I'm not you a... are two freaked out Jews and one even keeled homo sapien. <laughs> two freaked out Jews and one not freaked out and not so Jew. <laughs> Mika, the episode hasn't even gone out and you're already taking control. I know. That's why I'm worried about him like coming in here and like trying to trying to occupy our territory. Oh, so <laughs> typical Israeli. Yeah. <laughs> even though I'd call it oh door more Israeli than me. Anyways, I always end this with a Lila Tov door, Lila Tov Micha. You always end with a Lila Tov Micha. And uh, uh, you're uh, under uh, my skin. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Good night. Good night, everyone. My name's Jeff. I'm calling in from California. My name's Dor, and I'm joining you from London. Out of 16 million, we are two. Two freaked out Jews. <laughs> <laughs>